0: Good morning. His author, uh, John Ortberg, tells the story of every summer going to his grandmother's cabin in Wisconsin, and every summer they would play Monopoly, and every summer she would wipe the floor with him. She said the first lesson on Monopoly is ruthless acquisition, and she was ruthless. She was a cutthroat Monopoly player. And after one summer, John Ortberg said he had had enough. So he went home and he studied the game of Monopoly. He practiced up and for that whole year, he got better. So he goes back to the cabin that next summer and he takes his grandmother to task. He wipes the floor with her. He beats her soundly. And when the game was over, she said, now lesson number two when it comes to Monopoly It all goes back in the box. And I think that is exactly the message that Jesus is giving in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. Jack read them a moment ago. Let's read them again. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys. And where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In essence, Jesus says, everything goes back in the box. When it's all said and done, you can't take any of it with you, so you better make sure that you are treasuring things that you cannot lose. We read this passage and we assume that Jesus is talking about money and stuff. Maybe he's talking about stewardship. And while those assessments are not wrong, I believe that Jesus is talking about something bigger. I think there's a bigger picture in mind. You know what it is? I think it's idolatry. I think that's the bigger message here. If you want to know what a person worships, just follow the trail. Follow the trail of time and energy and effort and and, and whatever they treasure and cherish. And at the end of that trail, you're going to find a throne. And on that throne is going to be sitting whatever a person values most. When you start talking about treasures, you're also talking about altars. And then you're talking about worship. So Jesus speaks of treasures on earth versus treasures in heaven. But I think what he's really talking about is what we worship. What controls our lives. Everybody has an altar. It's not just about where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's this, where your treasure is, there your life will be also. Because your life follows whatever it is you treasure. Whatever it is you cherish in life, there your life will be. You cling to that treasure. You fight for it, right? You can't live without it. And Jesus says, quit treasuring the things that will not last. He is warning against a preoccupation with anything that can be destroyed. Everything that Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 6 has to do with man's relationship to money or possessions. You notice that? Go all the way back to the beginning, Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 1. What's he talking about there? He's talking about giving generously. You want to know a surefire way to keep your possessions, or your money from having a stranglehold on your heart, give it away. It's a good way. I mean, just be generous with it. That's a good way to show God and show yourself and others that money doesn't have a stranglehold on you. Then he starts talking about fasting. What would fasting have to do with money and possessions and man's relationship to it? Well, maybe you need to declare a fast. Maybe you need to declare a fast from some things in your life that are overshadowing God. Or maybe you need to declare a fast and get one-on-one with God and get your priorities rearranged. But then Jesus talks about a model prayer, doesn't he? And he tells his disciples, pray like this. And one of the things he says in that prayer is, give us this day our daily bread. And we hear the echoes of the Old Testament and the manna that God provided each day. Only gather what you need for that day because God was teaching reliance on Him and not self-reliance. We don't want our daily bread, though. We want our yearly bread. We We want our bread that will last a lifetime. We want our bread that's there for retirement so we don't have to worry, right? We want our security in our bread. And Jesus is saying give us this day our daily bread, means that you are reliant on God and you're not self-sufficient. But then that moves into what we read a moment ago, and then we read in verse 25 through 34, Jesus moves from treasures to acknowledging the temptation to store up treasures on earth. He recognizes that, that money and possessions are an easy god for people. Why do you think that God and Jesus spoke so much about man's relationship to money? Because they understood that that's the chief competition with faith. That we find our security, our faith in those things. Jesus recognizes that it's way too easy for people to find their security in their stuff. But he also recognizes the fact that when people do this, it leads to what? It leads to worry and anxiety. And he says, for this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? I don't get the impression that Jesus is scolding his listeners. I don't think he's pointing the finger and looking down his nose at them. I think he understands that worry and anxiety are very real issues for people living in this day and time and for us as well. But he's telling them you don't have to worry. Easier said than done, right? But he's saying you don't have to worry because is not life more than? That's a key phrase. Is not life more than your stuff? Is not life more than, in this case, food and clothing? I mean, he take care of the birds he clothes the lilies of the field will he not more than take care of you i mean jesus is going to die for you that shows you how much he cares about you and what he will do for you and so at the end of the day you don't have to worry because god is there jesus is there to take care of you you'll get your daily bread he says seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you in other words first things first the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing right the main thing is God, and the main thing is to keep Him the main thing. You get God right, you get everything else right, so quit bringing your sacrifice to the altar of worry. Incline your heart to seeking the kingdom and righteousness, and let that be your number one pursuit. But then notice verses 22 and following. He says, The eye is the lamp of the body, so that if your eyes clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and wealth. So the eye is the lamp to the body. It's the window, and the amount of light that is let in is dependent upon the window, right? So if that window is frosted glass, if it's tinted, if it has a blind or a shade on it, then that's going to regulate the amount of light that is able to get in. The evil eye is the eye that lets in Envy and lust and greed, and all of those other things. The single eye or the healthy eye lets in the proper amount of light. Remember that Jesus says, I am the light of the world, and even refers to us as lights in the world. When the light pierces our heart, we see the opportunity to store up treasures in heaven by being generous, by helping the needy. And that's one really good way to make sure that possessions don't control you. By giving them away, Jesus is essentially saying, you got to be focused. Don't let your vision be clouded. The story is told of a, a gentleman who would become a multimillionaire. And he attributes his wealth to God and to one event in his life. He said, when I was younger, I only had $100 to my name. That's all I had. And so one Sunday at church, when they passed the collection plate, I dropped in that $100. I gave everything to the church, to God, and that single event changed my life. And I have no doubt that the reason that I am a multimillionaire today is because of that. And one little old lady overheard him, and she said, I dare you to do it again. How far are we willing to go to suggest that money or stuff, possessions, does not have a stranglehold on our heart because the Bible constantly teaches that wealth is a subordinate good. Wealth is always a subordinate good. God blesses you with money so that you can give generously to assist others, right? It's always connected to the heart. So if you give begrudgingly, if you are a hoarder, if you ignore the needs of others, or if you, if you only give to those, uh, if you only give away what you don't need, if you only give from the top of your purse rather than from the bottom of your heart, then maybe you have too tight a grip on something that was never yours to begin with. Because you do realize that none of this belongs to you. The Bible calls you a steward, not an owner. And there's a big difference. Stewards are managers of what God has given them. Owners believe it's theirs. And they cling to it tightly. We have to understand, the Bible teaches that people are always more important than things. People are always more important than stuff. And money is a means by which we can help people. But not only that, money is a means by which we can measure what truly matters in our life. You want to show God, you want to show others that money doesn't control you and that you don't worship it? Well, then put your faith in Jesus. Put on your Jesus goggles and see people the way he sees them. Look for ways to be generous. Then notice verse 24. He says, no one can serve two masters. It's interesting that that Jesus reiterates a principle associated with the Ten Commandments here. As we read these words from our Lord, maybe your minds harken back to Exodus chapter 20 verses 2 and following where it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments." You know, we typically define idolatry as anything that comes before God, don't we? You probably have a priority list. Even if you haven't written it down, you've got one in your mind, right? And your priority list probably looks something like this. You have God, you have family, career, hobbies, whatever, you know. Like I've said before, faith, family, football, you know, that was my mantra as a coach. That sounds really good and pious and churchy and all that, right? Even if you don't live by this, this is really what you want as your priority list, don't you? And so what we say is, the Bible says to have no other gods before me. Well, God's number one, so therefore I'm good. Not necessarily. It could be that everything on your priority list, no matter where it ranks, is already a God for you. That's very possible. And in the Old Testament, when God said, you are to have no other gods before me, he was not suggesting that he be top God and everything else rank below him. No, in the original language, before me means in my presence. You are to have no other gods in my presence. In other words, your priority list looks like God and then nothing else. Nothing else. The only person on your list is God. The only thing on your list is God. Nothing else fights for first place. It's not that he receives top billing, he's it. Like we said a while ago, you get God right, you get everything else right. Let him be first, let everything else be subordinate to that, let him trickle down and infiltrate everything else, and then you're good, right? He wants us to be in relationship with him and he be the only God in our lives. I've heard people say it like this, idolatry is making a good thing the ultimate thing. Maybe that's a good way to put it. There are a lot of good things in your life. There's a lot of things that you give time and attention to that are good things. Just don't make them the ultimate thing, right? No created thing should be an ultimate thing in our lives. It it really reminds me of what Habakkuk said in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 17 and following. He says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls yet I will exalt the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and He has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on high places. Habakkuk is saying, even if I don't have any food, even if I don't have any livestock, I'm still going to worship you, God, because none of those things were the ultimate thing anyway. They were important to me, but they're not going to hinder me from having a relationship with you. They're certainly not going to keep me from worshiping you because those things were not the ultimate thing to begin with. You're God, and you're the only God in my life. So therefore, whatever happens, I'm all in. I'm with you all the way. You know, I don't mind sharing with you from my personal file that it was many months ago that I, I kind of came to the realization that that I may have been worshiping an idol in my life. And that's, that's something that's rather common probably for all of us, that we wake up one day and we say, oh, okay, I need to, to kind of get my priorities straight. And maybe you have to do that on a daily basis. I don't know. But I remember thinking, this idol that seems to, to be getting all of my time and attention is also affecting my attitude. It's affecting the way that I, that I interact with people. It's affecting my mood. And that's not good. And so I thought, what, what do I need to do here? And I had visions of the Old Testament, you know, removing the Asherah and, you know, grinding up the idol into powder. And, you know, I had these visions and think, well, I've got to remove it, right? Because that's what you do. When you have an idol in your life, you destroy it. Okay, but what if the idol is your kids? You don't really want to destroy your kids, hopefully. So maybe destroying it is not the answer. I could be wrong, but here's the answer that I've kind of come up with. And part of it comes from talking with friends and preachers that that kind of share the same sentiments. But the, the thing that I've kind of, the conclusion I've kind of reached is that it's not so much about removing it, but it's about drawing closer. You know how we rid the idols in our lives? You know how we deal with idolatry in our lives? We let God be our God. That's it. I mean, it sounds so basic and so simple, but that's what he wants anyway, right? He doesn't want top billing. He doesn't want to outrank all the other gods in your life. He wants to be God. He wants to be the only God, and he wants you to be in relationship with him. So let God be God. I mean, why do you think the ancients worshipped the goddess of love? Well, because love was the ultimate thing for them. Why do you think they worship the God of war? Because victory on the field of battle was an ultimate thing for them. Why do you think that they worship the God of the harvest? Because the crops became the ultimate thing. You know, they may be good things, but they became, they became the ultimate thing. They believed that a good crop or a victory or love or whatever would fulfill their deepest longing. If they could just have the things of the world, they would be happy. And not much has changed. I mean, we're really kind of the same way, aren't we? And I say we, I include myself in that. We're all kind of the the same as the ancients were to some degree. But here's the deal. Your heart will be wherever you want it to be. This is totally up to you. Your heart is mobile. It's a movable object. And it's going to be wherever you want it to be. We can talk all we want about how much something means to us. And we can say God is the ultimate, but your checkbook may tell a different story. Your checkbook don't lie. How you spend your money reveals the condition of your heart. That's why Jesus said what he did. When it comes to our money and our possessions, the question that we typically ask is, what are my money and my possessions doing for me? Right? That's what we typically ask. But the better question is, what is my money and my possessions doing to me? How are they affecting my life negatively? If I were to ask you, what are the five most important items in your life? What would that be? You don't have to answer out loud. Just think to yourself, what are the five most important items in your life? I mean, besides your family, besides your faith, maybe, you know, a family heirloom, maybe your cell phone, something like that. If you had a house fire, if your house was in danger, burning to the ground, and you could only save five things, what would they be? They'd probably tell you what you cherish and what you treasure, right? You'd save your cell phone, you'd save your wallet, you know, family heirloom, whatever. Let me ask you this. If you knew that Jesus was coming back at noon tomorrow, what would you mourn, what would you regret? Suddenly the cell phone and the wallet probably doesn't mean as much, right? Suddenly, those things are less important. I realize that many of the things that are important to you are things that are hard to let go of. I understand. This is not easy. Jesus never said it would be easy, only that it would be worth it, right? Discipleship's hard. It's difficult. And I think it's worth saying that Jesus is not condemning wealth. I don't believe that. We don't need to take this too far and say, well, I just need to sell off everything and go live in a monastery somewhere. That's the only reaction that I can take when I look at Jesus' words here. No, I don't believe that at all. I don't believe Jesus is saying that it's bad to plan for your future. I don't think he's saying that it's bad to have a retirement fund. What I do believe that he is getting at here is that if we have treasures that overtake our heart, then that's a problem. If we allow things on this earth to take the place of the eternal and overshadow what means the most, then that's a problem. Because the Bible condemns theft and covetousness because God recognizes that people have a right to stuff. You know, we also see in the Bible there were wealthy people, Abraham, Job, Solomon. So I don't think it's that Jesus is saying you can't be wealthy. I don't think he's condemning you for having stuff. But it's when the things of this world own us that we should be concerned. When you cannot imagine living without it. When you get angry when you cannot find it or you leave the house without it. When you are fearful of losing it. When you get highly upset when someone touches it or gets near it. When you, when you plan your schedule around it. When you choose it over family and friends. When your worry about it overshadows joy in your life. And I would add this, when your greatest satisfaction and fulfillment in life doesn't come from God, then you know it's a major problem for you. Philippians 3 and 8 reads, More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. Can we really say that nothing else matters? At the end of the day, nothing else really matters. When everything is considered garbage or refuse or, you know, the word Paul uses here in the original is dung. When you can say that everything else in comparison is a pile of manure, then I think you start to grasp it. You can love, you can enjoy and cherish things that are most important, like family and and, and friends and, and even work and hobbies, but you don't expect them to do something for you that only God can do, right? You keep them in their proper place because God comes first. When you are fully satisfied in God, earthly treasures assume a proper place in your life. Psalm 115, verses 4 through 8 reads, Their idols are silver and gold. The work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them. Your heart follows your treasure, which is the essence of idolatry, right? Idolatry isn't just about worshiping an image or bowing down to a statue. It's what your heart is following. That's the essence of idolatry. And the frightening consequence of all of it is that we become what we worship. Scary, isn't it? We become what we worship. Isn't it interesting that as God and Jesus both approach the subject of idolatry, they don't get into a deep theological argument? You notice that? God doesn't go with a deep theological argument here. You know what He says? He says you make these statues or these images, and they have a mouth, but they can't speak. They have eyes and they can't see. They have ears and they can't hear. They have a nose and they can't smell. They have feet and they can't walk. You know what that is? That's the height of stupidity. That's what that is. You're bowing down and worshiping this image, that you've made to have eyes and ears and a nose and all these kind of things, and yet it doesn't have any senses. Do you have any sense? I mean, that's really where God is arguing from. He doesn't make some deep theological argument. He says, how dumb is this? And Jesus is just as direct. He doesn't get into some deep theological argument. He just says, look, you're treasuring things that maws and rust are going to destroy or thieves are going to break in and steal. How dumb is that? The number one things in your life are things that you can't take with you. How silly is that? It's really just a plea for common sense. Just think about this for a moment. What are you treasuring? What are you cherishing in your life? Jesus says it's really dumb when you think about it that you are storing up treasures on earth, and when you're gone, it's all going to be sold in a weekend garage sale. You can't take it with you. And I realize that it's a family heirloom and it's been in the household for generations and I realize it's made of some durable polyurethane or whatever. I realize it's it's major in your life, but it's silly. It's ridiculous when you think about it. Both God and Jesus argue from the standpoint of just use some sense and think about this for just a moment. I would plead with you, think about the potential idols in your life. Is it money? Is it clothes? Is it your cell phone? Is it social media? Or is it, wait for it, is it politics? Yeah. How do these things make you feel? Think about your reaction to these things. Think about this. Think about how crazy new makes us. How crazy does new make us? When something's new, we get it and we feel like a better person. What's that all about, right? We get a new cell phone and suddenly that makes us a better person. We get a you know, new clothes and that makes us feel better, right? Most of us don't get a new cell phone because our other one died. We get a new cell phone because we want the latest, greatest model, right? We don't get new jeans because they disintegrated. And we get new genes that look disintegrated, right? Because we want to feel better about ourselves. Think about what new does to us. It's circular. It's a chasing of a feeling that can never satisfy because there's always something new. Hold on, I got a message on my new Apple Watch. We don't typically, we don't typically throw away the things in our life because they're no good anymore. We move on to newer And we think that that somehow somehow scratches an itch. And we become intoxicated. Our treasures, they begin to rub off on us. And we can't even resist the urge to put down our cell phones or to stay off of social media. We would never, ever think about leaving it in the car. It would be like somebody chopped off our hand. We can't even stay off of it in church. Because we're so consumed. Anything that assumes an unrightful place in your life has become an idol. Consider Psalm 115, verses 4 through 8. Consider how God talks about these these idols, the, the work of man's hands. Think about the different idols in your life and think about how not a single one of them can help you get to heaven. Not a single earthly treasure that you cherish can help you get to heaven, but every single one of them can assist you in not getting to heaven, right? I want to close this morning with a little test. And we're going to go through it pretty rapidly, so you don't have to to write these down. You can just answer them in your own mind. But i got a series of questions for you, okay? Here they are. Number one, name the ten wealthiest people in the world. Secondly, name the last 10 Heisman Trophy winners. If you don't know what a Heisman Trophy winner is, then just skip that one, okay? Name the last 10 winners of the Miss America pageant. Name five people who have won the Pulitzer Prize ever, not just the last five, name any five. Name the last 10 Academy Award winners for Best Actor. Name the last 10 World Series champions. Now, my guess is you probably... Didn't do very well on this. I mean, I would say virtually all of you would fail this test if we gave it for a grade. Which reiterates the common sense point that I think Jesus was making. We treasure winning. We emphasize beauty and smarts and talent. And yes, most people can't even name the top people in each category, right? We emphasize these things, and most people can't even name the top five or ten people in each category, which tells you something, right? That none of these things really matter when it's all said and done. Because beauty fades, achievements are forgotten, awards tarnish, your money doesn't go with you when you die, all those accolades, they're gone. Because here's the deal, whether you like it or not, whether you even agree with it or not, it all goes back in the box. It does. You can't argue that. It all goes back in the box. So what are you going to do going forward about the different idols in your life? Some things are easily forgotten, aren't they? Beauty, awards, wealth, all those things. They, they, those things are easily forgotten. Some things are not easily forgotten. And you know what they are? Love, generosity, humility, kindness. I have had the wonderful opportunity as a minister over the years to serve with some very godly men who were my elders. And those that have gone on before me, some of them were very wealthy Some of them made a major impact in their community and won a lot of awards, but that's not what I remember about them. You know what I remember about them? is their godliness, the way that they served, the fact that they were godly leaders. That's what I remember. Because I have yet to visit with someone on their deathbed, and they talk to me about their wealth. I've not visited with anyone who was a child of God on their deathbed who was concerned about their cell phone. Or about any of their treasures here on earth. It all goes back in the box. So, what are we storing up for ourselves? Are we storing up treasures that will not last? Or are we storing up the things that are heavenly? Are we making heavenly investments? If you have a need this morning that we can help you with, if you have come to the realization that maybe you're serving an idol, and maybe you're ready to change the way that you're living, and you need the prayers and support of this church family. We'd love to help you. I realize that not everyone who answers the invitation didn't really answer the invitation. You know, we have this idea, and it's really a tradition, that you come forward, and then we pray for you. You might be struggling with this, and this may be something you want to talk about outside of these walls, and maybe you want to share your heart. We've got We've got other ministers, myself, we've got elders that would help with that. Maybe you're ready to put on Christ in baptism this morning and begin a daily walk with God in discipleship. I don't know what your need is, but I know that this is a family that can help meet your needs. So if you're struggling, if you have something that we can help you with, why don't you come as we stand and as we sing.